0: And for our final episode of the season, I am thrilled to share a conversation that I had with Dr. Brooke Duffy. Dr. Brooke Erin Duffy is an associate professor at Cornell University, where she holds appointments in the Department of Communications and the Program in Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Her areas of interest include social media, gender identity and inequality, digital labor, cultural work and platformization, algorithms and quantification, and promotional culture. She's the author of two monographs on gender and cultural production, including Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work, published by Yale University Press in 2017, which draws upon research with fashion bloggers, YouTubers, and Instagram influencers to explore the culture and politics of digital labor. Wired named it one of the top tech books of 2017. Dr. Duffy's first monograph, Remake, Remodel, Women's Magazines in the Digital Age, published by the University of Illinois Press 2013, examined the rapidly changing technologies and political economies of media production through an analysis of the magazine industry. Dr. Duffy's third book, Platforms and Cultural Production, with Thomas Pohl and David Niebuhr, is forthcoming with Polity in 2021. She is also the co-editor of Key Readings in Media Today, Mass Communications and Context, with Joseph Thoreau published by Rutledge Press in 2009. Dr. Duffy's research has been published in a wide variety of academic journals, and she is also a public scholar whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Vox, Times Higher Education, Wired, and Quartz. Her commentary has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, BBC, Vox, The Washington Post, USA Today, and Vice, among others. Dr. Duffy has taught undergraduate and graduate courses on gender and media, new media and society, Cultural Production in the Digital Age, Media Theory, Advertising in Society, and Qualitative Methods of Communication Research. Hi, Brooke.
1: Hello, it's great to be here, Deb.
0: It's so great to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. And one reason that I wanted to talk to you today is that I'm really interested in the culture and the politics of digital labor. Maybe we can just start off with a basic definition. What is digital labor?
1: So, digital labor is one of these terms that is applied to such an extraordinary range of activities. And so, everything from technologically mediated gig work, and so Uber driving, Lyft driving, Upwork has been considered digital labor, so too has the unpaid activities we do to sustain social media networks. And so there's this idea that Facebook's not paying us, but we're providing our data and attention to keep the company running. And so that's digital labor. There is also the idea that social media creators and influencers, and this is a category of worker that I have been especially interested in, that the work they do to sustain their own careers but are on social media are digital labor. And so the term has such an astonishing deployment that uh, Alessandro Gandini recently argued um, that it may even be an empty signifier. I don't think it's an empty signifier, but I do think it's really important to be precise about the categories of activities we are describing. Are we talking about paid versus unpaid activities? Are we talking about the dimensions of labor? Are we talking about activities that range from online and and offline? And so for me, I'm especially interested in activities that both sustain digital media companies, but take place behind computer screens.
0: And when you say that you're particularly interested in those things, are there particularly urgent or definitive questions that you think that these areas in particular get at? Or are there questions that are urgent and definitive that we should be asking about digital labor?
1: Absolutely. You know, as easy it would be to take frameworks from the 20th century and apply them to understandings of work and and labor today, they don't translate well. They don't acknowledge the fact that um, so much of our lives are configured by digital technologies. And so the boundaries between work and home, as we've seen, especially in the context of the COVID pandemic, are very fuzzily defined. And so, you know, one urgent question is... Where are the boundaries that that exist between our digital laboring activities and our other activities? Another urgent question that I think highlights the fuzziness of offline and online is is the question of collective organization and activism. There's you know, this assumption that in the pre-digital age, a lot of collective advocacy activities were concentrated around the shop floor when when workers would come together and kind of discuss their grievances with conditions and so that was a catalyst for social change. That's a lot harder to do when you're not sitting face to face with someone you don't have those same sorts of connections with your colleagues or even your employer. And so, you know, I think one of those urgent questions is taking seriously how can we reroute activism through these technologies rather than see them as as kind of separate. And the final urgent question is, you know, how can we think about fairness and equity? There's been this discourse that the digital labor market is somehow um, egalitarian because anyone with access to technology, which of course is is not everyone, that's a barrier right there, is somehow enabled to be an equal participant in the marketplace, but we're still seeing traditional hierarchies persist. And so how can we Take seriously what fairness and equity look like within the digital labor market.
0: You've given me a lot to think about, so my mind is going in a couple of different directions, but I'll just say that the idea that it is equitable is ludicrous to me, particularly because so much of that labor, at least to get a project off the ground, isn't paid labor, which would mean that you would have to have at least, at very least, a certain kind of stereotypical setup in Silicon Valley which is the parent's garage, the place that somebody else is paying for where you get to build your thing out, which means that you already have to have some kind of access to a certain level of economic stability or some form of wealth to begin with. I think that expansively that really means that you have to have a kind of labor support to begin with, or at least financial support from elsewhere to be able to do the unpaid labor. So this brings into my mind that there is already inequity built right into who can get a project off the ground right away from the get-go. But the other point that you brought up is actually something that I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, more about. Actually, maybe the two are linked. You talked a little bit about the way in which there's a kind of blurred boundary between online and offline activities in digital labor. And I wonder if you, when you said that, had a case in mind or a particular place where you see that blurred boundary really happening the way that maybe shows the way that such a labor becomes urgent or definitive in terms of some of the central issues involved in digital labor.
1: You know, I think one of the places we see this um, most... Clearly is, you know, to use another euphemism, but in in the gig economy. And so if we're thinking about everything from Upwork and Lyft, which are, you know, in a lot of ways categorically distinct from freelancer platforms, which is also like, so Upwork and Fiverr. Uh, versus care work platforms all of these are shoehorned under this label of digital but of course the activities the arrangements are digitally mediated but it's very much based upon face-to-face engagement face-to-face relationships and is in a lot of ways a, a service economy model or more aptly what's known as the reputation economy because you know anytime you uh, take an Uber or Lyft or you know buy or exchange service on one of these platforms, there's this very instrumental function at the end where someone's like, you know, I I hope you could help me by, you know, giving me a good rating, give me a, a five star rating. And again, I say instrumental because people's livelihoods depend upon this. And even though these are based upon these face-to-face interactions, much of it is routed through not just the platforms, but the platforms, algorithmic systems, and rating systems, which we don't fully know how they work.
0: Another thing that comes to mind, because you mentioned digital labor and data ownership, is that a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation on the show with Joe Toscano, who's leading a movement to get regulation in place that would allow us to own our own data. And part of what we talked about... I think, in digital labor is the fact that we supply large media companies and, and social media platforms with data that they can then use to create entertaining places for us to go online. Or, for example, if we drive cars that have automation as part of their mechanism for operation, every time we drive, we're supplying those companies with our data that they then use to improve and create new products. Are these kinds of digital labor things that you think about? Or are they things that we should be thinking about in terms of the larger construct and maybe some of the larger philosophies and ideas around labor? In response to that
1: question, I think it's important to differentiate, should we be thinking about these questions and can we and, and will we? And I, I say that because, you know, these debates about whether we should be compensated for the the labor and the time and the energy and attention we are supplying to digital platforms, this is not necessarily new there are political economists' writings from the, the 70s and 80s. And here I'm referring to the work of um, Dallas Smythe, who argued that when we're watching TV, which we think of as the most passive, leisurely activity we can engage in, we're actually doing the, the work of watching. And we're doing the work of watching the ads rather than the content, because we are, you know, consuming these messages with the idea that we're going to go out and buy the products. And so, you know, So there was a lot there was a big conversation among political economists at the time about how to think about this seemingly leisure passive time activity as a much more active and value generating activity. And so a lot of those conversations have been revived in the context of digital and social media, where, you know, we think if we are on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook, you know, we're just kind of passively engaging. But we're, of course, as you noted, you know, constantly providing not just our attention, but we're providing data that supplies the advertising economy. And so, you know, the reason I say to keep a distinction between should we and can we is because I talk about this with my students, like it's really hard to reconcile how we would come to grips with the trade-off. And so I, I, you know, I say, OK, well, what if I told you that Facebook will no longer collect your data, but you have to pay $20 a month to opt out of this? No, nobody wants to do this because we've been socialized to think of this as as free. And so, you know, it requires a huge shift shift to understand something that you know we have for almost 20 years understood as a free service transforming that to something that we are willing and able to pay for. And if Facebook all of a sudden says they're going to charge us $20 a week and opt out of data, we're going to move on to the next platforms because we have so many different options right now within this larger social media ecosystem. So ideally, I mean, absolutely, we should reckon with it. But I think it's really hard in terms of practical terms to get us to shift our cognitive understanding of what platform service provides.
0: Yeah, I've heard this called the original sin of the internet. Mm-hmm. As a follow-up question, I'm just curious, where do your students ultimately come down on it? Are they, are they aggressively pro getting rid of ads and aggressively against the demands on their attention by what Tim Wu calls attention merchants? Or are they more apt to stay on Facebook in the way that Facebook allows us to use its platform for free, in the sense, pimping us out to advertisers and sponsors who then make claim on our time?
1: It's really interesting. Most of them are much more willing to maybe not necessarily Facebook, but to stay on the platforms because there's this widespread understanding that companies already have all this data on us at this point. So, you know, how much can it hurt us to provide like incrementally more data? And, you know, that speaks to a larger shift that I've noticed in teaching for the past I guess, decade now, when I talk to students, and I I talk a lot about surveillance and privacy, and when I first began asking questions, there was much more of a concern about the surveillance and privacy of institutions, and in particular, marketers. And so there was this like, well, that's really creepy to see you know, this ad pop up for something I was searching for. Now we are socialized to accommodate and accept these ads. And so my students express much less concern about marketing surveillance and government surveillance, and much more about workplace surveillance and parental surveillance. So it's a really interesting shift that I think speaks to the fact we've kind of been trained or socialized to accommodate this advertising tracking.
0: It's something that I think about increasingly as well. I've recently become a lot more circumspect about which tabs I open on my work computer or what files I create on my work computer because I'm very aware of the ways in which my workplace, even the academy, a place where they propose you know, academic freedom, that my supervisors may be culling my data and evaluating me in so many ways that I don't even know about. I guess to pivot that into a question, some of the tabs that I opened in preparation for this interview are tabs that I might not in other circumstances want my workplace to see me opening. They had to do with anti-fan blogging. And I had a lot of fun reading about, for example, Kim Kardashian bashing and reading about influencers and all the people who dislike influencers. I was particularly engaged by your article, fake, and the fake is in quotation marks or air quotes, femininity, question mark, gendered authenticity, policing in influencer hate blogs. And for our listeners, once again, the word fake is in quotation marks and fake femininity has a question mark after it. What is a hate blog? Why do people write and read hate blogs?
1: So hate blogs are part of a larger genre of what Jonathan Gray and others call anti-fandom. And so the idea with anti-fandom is that there are hyper-engaged fans who express their affect, but it's not positive, like we would think of a traditional fan relationship, it is negative. And over the past decade, we've seen that the influencer community is one of the primary targets for the activities of these anti-fans or these haters. And so the the project you're mentioning, which I collaborated on with my colleagues, uh, Kate Miltner and Amanda that taps into these very targeted spaces where people and tens of thousands of people come together to police the activities of influencers and other social media personalities. And the rationale on the part of these anti-fans is, well, they put themselves out there, so we as a public should be able to hold them accountable for their activities. We should be able to scrutinize them. We should be able to call out inconsistencies. And this, too, has a an earlier precursor. I mean, think about celebrity culture, whether we're talking about, you know, People magazine and gossip magazines from the 20th century to the gossip blogs like Perez Hilton, that Dominated, the same sort of rationale. Well, if you put yourself out there, then, of course, we should be able to scrutinize you and provide not just positive but negative feedback. But I think one of the key differences is in this form of influencer social media culture, these are often individuals that that lack the same sources of support and agency and legal care that can navigate the sort of hate in the same way that 20th century celebrities could.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's so interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking that those precursors are very much part of my mind as a, as a literary scholar. I think about these things a lot as a literary scholar in terms of genre whether or not there is a historical precedence in other uh, older forms and of course as you pointed out the tabloids are certainly of the same genre they are a historical precedent for the phenomenon that you study and then i started to wonder what other arenas are there right now that are out there for example of anti-fan kind of blogging that might be commensurate and i started to think about the kind of robust and oftentimes snarky to use another term that you associate with those hate blogs conversations around political figures. And I was wondering, is there a development or a kind of consistency or a kind of familial identity between the development of these anti-fan hate blogs targeting influencers and the kind of discourse that we're seeing right now targeting political figures? Now you point out one major difference, which is that these influencers oftentimes don't have the protections, either cultural, legal, or economic, that some of these other major political figures do. But I wondered, well, even outside of the consequences, are there ways that they kind of punch down or punch up in different ways? It just seems to be a kind of similar analogous rise between these two different arenas in our politically heated environment that is also deeply invested in hate blogging. Do you see a connection? Is there something in the water of the internet that leads people to want to leverage these kinds of critiques as they do? Or is this what you're talking about here, a very specific and very defined, coherent and different form of hate blogging?
1: Uh, I think the answer is is both. I mean, there are certainly similarities to the criticism waged on public figures more broadly, whether we're talking about, again, celebrities or politicians or journalists or, or anyone in the public sphere. I mean, that's one of the key distinctions with digital and social media, is that they enable communication on a networked, massive scale. And so of course, people have always gossiped about celebrities and politicians and journalists, but you know, that was within the confines of their homes or, or, or smaller spaces, where they didn't necessarily have the same sort of direct connection to this public figure. And the communication did not have the lifeline to reach such a massive span in such a short amount of time, you know, you say something hateful but it's not going to amplify in the same way that it can on social media. And so, you know, that's where I would say, of course, there are are comparisons between anyone in the the public eye, politicians, sport figures, celebrities, influencers. But what I think is unique about the culture of influencers and, and creators is how vibrantly this space is attacked and policed in ways that I think are patently gendered. You know, certainly these are feminized genres. And so the activities, the criticisms, and even some of the fans seem to be these gendered activities. And so whereas the critiques on a politician in most cases focus on the sort of content and their character and these more intrinsic factors, so much of the criticism of influencers and creators sort of centers on this Constructed version of fakery and policing whether they are being real and authentic or whether they are being fake, duplicitous, inconsistent, so on and so forth. And so I think in that way, the critique takes a particularly interesting form.
0: I want to talk about gender in just a second, but you mentioned that term authenticity. And there's a question there that I deeply want to ask. I, I've written quite a bit about authenticity, and something I think about quite a lot is what is authenticity? And what does that term authenticity um, mean? Does it have any particular pressure or inflection to it in the context of online self-representation? Does the nature of authenticity change or is there a particular kind of resonance for that term in the context of online discourse?
1: What is authenticity? That's the the million-dollar question. And it has been described as realness, as sincerity, as originality, as consistency. And here I'll mention the work of my collaborator, Jeff Pooley, who notes that this whole ideal of authenticity actually emerged in the early 20th century and kind of followed the trajectory of consumer culture. And so think about in the 60s and 70s, Coca-Cola was advertising itself as the real thing. I mean, that was a nod to authenticity there. And then, you know, I think a lot about the Dove campaign and this appeal to like real women. And of course, who knows what a quote unquote real woman is? That's very subjective. But so I think in a lot of ways, it is important to see authenticity as something is something that is an ideal that has been um, constructed in ways that are both with and against consumer culture. So with that background in mind, it's taken on a a heightened resonance in the social media age. And in particular, it's constructed in ways that seem to dismiss the performative Element of social media, and you know, here I want to highlight that this draws on ideas of Goffman. But we're we're always performing, and so this assumption that like somehow we're being real when we're offline and fake when we're online, I think is is quite disputable. But you know, different social media sites often foreground the idea of authenticity. Creators who I've done a lot of work on often talk about the importance of being authentic in order to to draw an audience and so you know, this term has come to the point of going back to what I mentioned earlier, being an empty signifier, you know, when everything is supposed to be authentic, how do we pin down this term? And, you know, I, I I do think it falls very much into something that is so widely applied to social media culture, but something that is also so widely critiqued within the context of of social media culture, where we're constantly trying to suss out if someone is being authentic or fake. And you know how are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Where do we draw the boundaries between their performances?
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. What came into my mind as you were talking is that the definition of authenticity seems to almost swerve in two completely opposite directions. On the one hand, authenticity is some form of platonic ideal. It's some core essential character. And on the other hand, authenticity seems to be a certain degree of unguardedness, this idea that you're letting somebody else see your flaws. Now, of course, if you have flaws, then you are not the platonic ideal of some sort of essential quality of character. So of course, it's almost as though it's completely paradoxical. And I wonder whether there's a kind of connection here between that kind of impossible paradox that authenticity provides or that that term seems to embody. And then the way in which it has been used and in a kind of a way becomes a double bind for women performing that authenticity, who on the one hand, in the eyes of their audience should, again, in the expectation of their audience, have a form of authenticity that makes their lives aspirational. To be that kind of authentic, their presentation should require talent and their presentation should also at the same time be intimate. At the same time, these same women are critiqued for being aspirational because they're faked or they're they're faking something. Then they're criticized for having shrewdness or talent in their presentation because if they have shrewdness or talent, they're exploiting or mining their authentic lives for money in ways that are not real work. And in that context they are then narcissistic or they're a thirst trap because they broadcast their intimate lives in ways that often underscore their sexuality or they have exposed intimate details with pr- presumably the assumption that other people would be interested in what might be effectively the minutia of their days. So all of these ways in which they're asked to perform are essentially paradoxical or, or as I want to call it, a, a double bind. Can you talk a little bit about this double bind, particularly in the case that you reference, which is the get off my internets or the GOMI community composed of critics or what you call anti-fans?
1: Absolutely. And I think double bind is such an apt way to describe it. You know, with double binds, it's essentially you're you're damned if you do, you, you're damned if you don't. And so the question is, what is the double bind that influencers and almost exclusively women influencers find themselves in when they are presenting their lives for public consumption on, on social media sites? And we found that there is such a narrow space within which women feel compelled to present their identities that often center on this this ideal of authenticity and straying from anything deemed fake. But of course, you know, as we just talked about, these are highly subjective categories. And so, you know, one case that came up a lot was in the context of physical beauty standards and, and aesthetics. And so in one sense, if these women were seen as projected A sense of their external beauty in ways that were too performative. If they were relying on, if they were deemed to rely on Photoshop or Facetune or Botox, then they were trying too hard. They were presenting a likeness that wasn't quote unquote authentic, it wasn't true. But at the same time, if they were being too vulnerable, if they weren't wearing enough makeup, if they weren't engaging in enough of the kind of beauty industry politics, then they were defying these norms of social media performativity. And so in either case, it it raised the potential for haters to call them out. You know, we saw similar trends with family, with their relationships, with their jobs, And so in the case of their jobs, they, you know, of course, the way that the influencer economy works is that individuals who are successful enough receive compensation in exchange for promoting various brands or goods. And so if they were seen as peddling too many products, or if they were shilling a product and it was seen that they don't really love it, they were called out for fakery. But at the same time, I mean, people are drawn to these images because they provide reviews and product advice and, and aspirations. So again, it's this idea that you, you really can't win when being a woman, or I would say marginalized member of society at, at any level within the context of social media, because you, again, have these very narrow standards within which you are expected to operate. And if you defy them on either side, if you're too real or too fake, you're going to draw ire and criticism and hate.
0: Yeah, and I think you're demonstrably right in saying that this has a very gendered dimension to it. I wanted to ask a question about that gendered dimension because I think quite clearly, I mean, I I spent some time on the G-O-M-I or Get Off My Internet's website. And from what I saw quite clearly, as I said, demonstrably, it is observably gendered. But but then I wondered, are men policed on different criteria? Is there a bind that men too have to straddle? Is it rather that men just don't face this kind of scrutiny at all? What is the nature of the gendered dimension that you talk I about? I think in
1: a lot of ways, it goes back to very early, and we could even say Victorian era concerns about how women are perceived and expected to behave in public space. And so long outdated norms and codes of behavior and and these ideals of restraint and public decorum and profiting from one's looks, these were all derided as, as things that suggested something about your lack of inner virtue. And I think there is still a a sense of resonance today. Of course, in the social media era, anyone who does put themselves out there is vulnerable to targeted attacks, to hate, to criticism. But if you look at who in particular is getting critiqued for quote-unquote fakery or for participating in influencer marketing, or engaging in you know paid product reviews, it's heavily gendered. Look at the targets on Get Off My Internets or sites like Tattler Life or some of the influencers' truth account. These sort of influencer policing accounts that are quite popular on Instagram. There was a documentary that came out maybe six months or so ago called Fake Famous. And the one of the three people who is constructed as most able to fake her way to the top is the the one woman on it. And so I think, you know, there's very much resonance of, of these earlier concerns, and in particular, um, the idea of fakery. And here I'm going to Call attention to this book. It's called Hope in a Jar by Kathy Pice. And it's a history of cosmetics. And I was just talking about this in my my gender and media class this week. So it's top of mind. But one of the arguments she makes is that the use of cosmetics and makeup was considered very immoral in the late 19th century and it was associated with sexual promiscuity the idea of like painted women and, and prostitutes and so that's you know certainly a far cry from where we are now but it's you know, there was so much boundary policing about. You know, is this person being real and showing their true self to the world, or are they using cosmetics to conceal who they really are? And so, I think you know, one of the things we were discussing in my class is that these same concerns have been sort of transmuted onto what when we're talking about filters and and Photoshop and the the fakery there and like the potential for duplicity. So, yeah, I do think that these are much these are social codes that have a quite long history.
0: So, are we just talking? About- about kind of imported Victorian ideals and primers and conduct manuals in this new iteration now put into a digital context? Or are we talking about something fundamentally different in this kind of specific internet related phenomenon?
1: I think it's this seeming, you know, emphasis on the seeming ease at which people can monetize this. So there's a lot of concerns about whether it's ethical for mommy bloggers to monetize their families and and potentially commodify these expressions of, of family relationships and, you know, the same sorts of critiques of influencers in particular, you know, are they commodifying moments of this intimate social life in a a highly public way? And so I think that the economic system that underpins it is different and linked to the, the growth of the creator economy.
0: I'm glad that you brought up economics because I think that there's a really important way in which gender and economics really is in the foreground of marketing that you mentioned as well. When I think about the fact that women are more heavily policed, one of the things that I think about is that maybe there simply are just more women who are doing this kind of digital labor work. And then I think that part of that phenomenon has to do with the fact that women have historically been shut out of certain economic markets, and that this this form of digital labor is a market in which women can be dominant, and more specifically, this is a market where women who might not have otherwise ever been able to economically support themselves because they have families or because they're responsible for childcare. These women can then have an intervention into the labor market by marketing things like the image of their families, for example. And as you point out in the piece that I mentioned earlier, fake femininity, gendered authenticity policing in influencer hate blogs, the definition of authenticity produced online in online discourse is very much tethered to and very much responsive to the use of those terms, authentic and real. Real, real people can leverage their connection to audiences, for example, by showing their real family to those audiences. And then those real, real people can oftentimes form a connection to those audiences by showing their online personalities. And then by constructing themselves as real and relatable, they can use that image to gain influence, which then can in turn be leveraged by brands into marketing and selling products. So how does authenticity, and I think gender too, Work in the context of an online economic market driven with incentives to sell things by leveraging authenticity.
1: I think you're absolutely spot on in calling attention to the importance of the fact that women have historically been excluded from labor markets or else their work has been structurally devalued or rendered invisible and here I'm referring to you know quote unquote women's work whether we're talking about in the domestic space or reproductive labor or so on and so forth and so with that backstory in mind social media does furnish women and historically excluded populations access to this marketplace but in ways But in ways that they are expected to perform a sense of femininity or what I've talked about with my collaborator, Emily Hunt, this kind of ideal of having it all. That you can be an an entrepreneur and maintain this idealized life and create content and draw an audience and, you know, have the, the perfect blend of family, marriage and career on the surface. You know, the reality is it's grueling work. It's exhausting to mine your life for content, to have every activity you do scrutinized by anonymous publics. And so, you know, that's kind of the gender dimension is that it's a gendered form of self-presentation. And also it's the same feminine coded ways that that opens you up for criticism and harassment. And so, you know, that's the gendered notion of real, but it's also a a heavily classed version in terms of, you know, what realness means and how it gets coded as sort of a middle class sensibility, the same sort of thing. If you show yourself in a way that is deemed too excessive, or if you are flaunting your privilege, you defy the codes of authenticity in the same way that if you don't have access to these standards, I mean realness, as we've talked about, requires resources. And so it's, it's the same sort of double bind we talked about in the context of gender, but, it, but in this case, the context of class.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about online environments and presentation, particularly in the context of social media right now, because in my view, this extreme phenomenon of self-representation is behind some of the great news stories of our moment. Great, by the way, not as uh, in exemplary or exciting, but rather as large and important. News stories about unethical technological production in the news recently is quite prevalent. The news, for example, that Facebook knew that its platform Instagram was hijacking a certain performative impulse in teen girls and enlisting that performative impulse as a strategy to keep those girls on the platform. That news also broke that Facebook also knew that the consequence of being on that platform and being driven and prompted to, in a sense, perform in this way was actually doing harm to the psyche of young girls to the point of damaging their self-esteem and to the point sometimes of suicide side. What's your take? Is this performative dimension of online identity changing what it means to be feminine? What it means to be human? Is there a specific gender dimension to that kind of exchange?
1: Oh, in terms of the case of Facebook and the notion of whether there's a new dimension of performativity. I mean, in one sense, as we talked about earlier, you know, social interaction is is always deemed a performance. Goffman's work on front stage versus backstage, you know, acknowledge the fact that we perform different senses of, of self based upon, you know, whether we're dealing with a public audience or fellow actors and so on and so forth. But I don't want to suggest that social media platforms are compelling us to perform and we never have before. We always have in, in some sense, but I think there were limits on it. And now the performative dimension is compounded by the fact that A, the audience has reached such a massive scale where these performances are no longer in front of a handful of individuals, but, but they can take on a mass public in ways never before imaginable. Um, so that. There's the audience element of it. And there's also just this sheer number of social media platforms that that compel us to perform. And so... You know, I I feel myself doing this, and I know my students talk about doing this. But I think a lot of people perform different elements of themselves based upon the actual platform that they are on. I mean, in, in ways, this is an attempt to sort of manage a sense of audience. If we present a more professional self on LinkedIn and Twitter, and a more familial self on Facebook, and a more glamorous self on Instagram, and a more uh, silly self on TikTok or whatever it is, I mean, these are all. Perform- formative dimensions, but they are increasing the pressure to which we have to perform. And we have to think about these audiences on this, this unimaginable scale. And so with the case of Facebook and Instagram and the potential connections to mental health. I don't want to draw too much on the psychology of it because I consider myself a a sociologist. What does feel different is the comparative nature and the fact that you are, with every single performative expression, opening yourself up to public and anonymized critique in ways that don't translate to the offline world and part of that and i think one of the really important points that has come up in this is the role of the algorithms in showing people these images i mean it's it's really hard to find a, a corollary from a traditional environment that played the same sort of curatorial role in our everyday consumption that algorithms do. And I I read a piece, I think it was a Vox piece the other day that said for a high school girl, normally they would compare themselves to all the other girls in the high school, but now they're comparing themselves, not just to all the young girls on different social media platforms, but the one that the platforms are algorithmically determining are the most attractive and then circulating in earnest and so the sort of level of of control that platforms have to take the performances that we provide and curate them and shepherd them and you know, potentially manipulate them, that's what feels different and, and much more alarming to me.
0: And as long as we're talking about the kind of algorithmic decisions that are going into creating our cultural, economic, and political landscape, I thought I would rope in a question that I think I've had many different interlocutors on this podcast answer, which has to do with the relationship between self-presentation, cultural production, civil discourse, and algorithmic amplification of those things online. I've had a running debate on this podcast series with different experts, scholars, critics and tech leaders across the board about the nature of what has been called in air quotes, free speech. Now, now whether that term in its proper legal context applies to private platforms is, of course, dubious, but we'll take it as a principle term about expression for the moment and suspend our disbelief as a principle that at least certain people defend on these platforms. Some folks have tended toward the idea that platforms ought to represent the democratic consciousness of their users unfettered others, including, and I'll show my cards here myself, tend to think that while free speech is an important value and principle, it isn't sovereign as a principle. It is a principle whose significance, ethic and utility ought to exist in tension with other principles. For example, the principle of not causing harm. So while someone like Erwin Chemerinsky, who is the Dean of UC Berkeley's School of Law and the co-author of a book called Free Speech on Campus, will say something like, and I'm gonna quote him here, speech can't be prevented simply because it's offensive, even if it's very deeply offensive. And while Chemerinsky would argue that it's generally a good idea to protect speech that we don't like, even if we're not legally obligated to do so, I'm more persuaded by the argument of John A. Powell, also at Berkeley School of Law, who says, it's not that I don't understand or care deeply about free speech. But what would it look like if we cared just as deeply about equality? What if we weighed the two as conflicting values instead of this false formalism where the right to free speech is recognized, but the harm caused by that speech is not? This is something that I think about a lot in the context of gender and race, in particular in online discourse. After all, women and people of color experience the violence of unfettered free speech disproportionately. So in that sense, the decision to prioritize the value of free speech online may reflect a value and, in fact, encode a value that white hetero men may be able to have in a less complicated and less personally consequential way because the negative consequences of prioritizing that value may be felt less by that demographic. What if we cared about equality or more specifically, what if we cared about the value of not causing harm disproportionately to vulnerable groups as much as we cared about free speech? So I thought that I'd ask you to comment and maybe add your voice to this kind of consideration on the topic, given your research in the specific context of gender representation online. What's your take?
1: I love this question and I love you know how you set up the different tensions and whether this ideal of, of free speech, which was inherited from a very different communication era and certainly media era, should still be kind of the end-all be-all when we're thinking about how to regulate or not regulate Platforms and how this plays a role in governance. And maybe I would have had a different answer at at some other point in time, but I spent part of this summer on the heels of the Get Off My Internets project interviewing social media creators across genres, across platforms. And here I was working, I want to draw attention to my two fantastic research assistants, Megan Soey and Annalie Ananye. But we were interviewing people about the, the stakes of being visible in the social media ecology. And we heard consistently about the hate and harassment, but almost every instance was blanketed by discourses of sexism, racism, body discrimination, so on and so forth, and these sort of structural inequalities that shaped their everyday experiences and you know equally problematic were not protected by the platforms and so you know, we heard consistently that these instances of of vitriol and hate that ranged from negative expressions on their social media content to death threats to stalking. And what made this all the more concerning is the fact that those we interviewed felt that they had very little recourse when it comes to platforms. And so the onus was all on them to police. And so, you know, YouTube and Instagram allow you to filter out certain code, work, code words that are likely to be triggering or likely to be euphemisms for hate speech. But that's all on the user. And when the people we interviewed would reach out and try to gain help from platforms, they felt that... They were really lacking in any sort of systematic civil protection. And so this narrative, which I think is really important to challenge that, oh, if you put yourself out there, then you open yourself up to hate and harassment. Well, that hate and harassment is experienced differently if you're a, you know, cisgender white man versus if you are a marginalized member of society who is trying to either share your creative expression with the world or earn an income from it. And so, you know, for me seeing the potential harm there and how much it it translates into to social identity i mean i i assumed that was the case but i don't think any of us realized until we did the interviews that again it it and it spanned all platforms or excuse me it spanned all platforms but it also spanned various genres so we were talking to people who were in you know the fashion and beauty space people in the the tech space people in the translation space people in the education space and consistently to hear about this hate and harassment. And the the lack of protection from platforms suggests to me that, you know, we need to take seriously the claims of platform companies who, from my unabashedly critical view, have found various ways to evade responsibility and continue to seek out ways to evade responsibility.
0: I think sometimes it's the guise of calling out a value or principle as a way to not have to do the work of actually fixing or preventing predictable damage. And we're talking today on November 9th, 2021, and the big, or at least one of the big, large news stories right now is that Representative Paul Gassar has tweeted out a altered animated video showing him killing the Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is something that at this point in time, one day later, Twitter has flagged, but it's still up there on the platform because it's considered to be of interest. And whether or not it is or is not public interest, my thought is, I don't want you know a private company whose top priority is their bottom line deciding whether or not public interest should be governed by a particular value that they privately decide. I think that there actually is a space here where we move away from this kind of ethical consideration or ethical questions of what should these companies do or what ought these companies to do, and where we move instead to determining that these are actually legal questions, which are, of course, not ethical questions. They are instead regulations, what you must do to follow the law. Do you see a particular space here for legislation? Did your research lead you to any policy recommendations or suggestions?
1: So I will respond first by saying that I was pleasantly surprised with a lot of the legislative conversations that have emerged in the wake of the publication of the Facebook files. And for those of you not familiar, this was the series of documents that were unveiled by the Wall Street Journal in, I believe, September of this year that showed the myriad ways in which Facebook was aware of its potential harmful impact on users' mental health and, and civil society more broadly, but continued to operate out of its capital mission of, of pursuing business. And in the wake of that, and especially at the hearing surrounding the whistleblower who provided the documents, I think the senators in the US demonstrated Quite advanced understanding of how these platforms work and how they govern, and I think a lot of it was kind of spurred by the realization that there is a concern for our morally protected categories and children. And so, in, in some ways, this kind of raised the specter of moral panics, but in a to to positive ends that I hope that the awareness that senators have, and one that contrasted so sharply from the image we saw when when Zuckerberg was under fire, and I believe twenty. And it was just like, these people don't understand how social media systems operate. I think now that, you know, there's a a critical awareness that speaks to the potential for legislation, but also suggests that we as a public have a, a sense of how these platforms sustain themselves through the sorts of capital and labor that we were talking about earlier and in ways that have the potential to if not encourage them but to to force them to take seriously their role in public life and ensure that they no longer evade responsibility in the ways that they have specifically and more personally i had the opportunity to contribute to a conversation In the UK's Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee earlier this year, where the MPs were tasked with coming up with guidelines for influencers and content creators. And a lot of the discussion focused on protecting them from both harassment and exploitation. And I thought that was a huge move to even have this conversation And to take seriously a career that is often considered in popular culture as sort of frivolous or fluffy. You know, you, you hear those stats about my kids want to be YouTubers, and there's this like sense of, of fear and almost moral derision. But the fact that policymakers are taking seriously the livelihoods, and I guess I would say both the, the economic and social status of influencer social media careers, I think suggests some, some progress. But of course, there's much more to be done.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your book on not getting paid to do what you love. For listeners, you can't hear it but the not in the title is in parentheses what is meant in that parenthetical not in relationship to the oft-repeated cliche about getting paid to do what you love
1: the book taps into this social media ideal that anyone provided they have enough talent and creative energy can get paid to do what they love in the social media age. But the parentheses around not suggest that many people are roused by the promise of doing this, but few actually reap the rewards of the social media. Economy because so few people are able to successfully turn their so called passion projects into this lucrative and rewarding career. And one of the reasons is not just because of the hyper saturated nature of this economy. I mean, every I feel like anyone you talk to knows someone who became a creator and is making millions of dollars, but Also because of the fact that there are a lot of social barriers that exist in the economy of creators. And so here I'm referring to everything from YouTube to Instagram to now TikTok.
0: You know, to me, there really is a kind of morally disturbing logic behind the idea of telling people that they should do what they love. You talked about this in the context of the digital uh, labor of influencers, but your book also takes up this point for that definition, which resonated with me. You know, sometimes I meet people who tell me that since I love reading, it must be great to have a job where I can do what I love. And they tell me that they wish more people would just do what they love. And I understand the ethic behind the cliche. Work takes up a large amount of our time, and our time is a valuable resource, and the way that we spend our time constitutes a reflection of our values. But in my view, the logic kind of falls apart, because if everyone did what they loved, I don't know how many people we would have doing work that is unpleasant. And moreover, there are only so many jobs for photographers and models and actors. A lot more people love and want to do those things than there are spaces for people to do those things. Believe me, I lived in Los Angeles. There are far more people who want to do those things than there are jobs for those things. And certainly this is also true for academia. There are a lot more people who want to teach and read literature for their jobs than there are jobs for people who love those things. A fact that I only truly realized after spending close to a decade in graduate school, I spent 10 years doing what I loved. And then I discovered that there are a receding number of jobs for people who had invested 10 years in being able to do what they loved. And then I saw a lot of people who spent 10 years doing what they loved and then were not able to get jobs afterwards. And, And to be sure, I was spending time in graduate school doing what I presumably loved, but the idea that I was doing what I loved ended up having a really unseemly effect because what it seemed to mean was that I should expect to do it without hope or expectation of equitable and sustainable compensation. And I think we see that happening right now in academia in the context of those working in contingent jobs, adjuncting with no health benefits on $30,000 a year in an economy that doesn't offer them any other options in ways that are deeply unethical and don't provide a way of survival. And the universities who offer those jobs and pay the wages that they do because they can, because people are willing to take those jobs at unlivable wages to do what they love. And certainly academia isn't the only one of these predatory industries that exploits people doing what they love. If you love what you do, the logic seems to go, shouldn't you be just happy to get to do it? What right do you have to demand a price for it, right? There's a lot that I wanna say here, but to point this into a question, maybe I can just start off by asking, did your study change the way you thought about academic labor?
1: absolutely you know i i really appreciate the the nuance you brought to this and of course the assumption that you know if if love and careers are are deeply bound what does that mean for people who are doing these vital but you know seemingly hard to love jobs, whether we're talking about manual labor or or rote jobs. And so there's certainly a, a privilege there. And to that point, you know, who can afford to do what you love? And your question really tapped into the class structure that underpins this, because one of the, the arguments I make is that it actually takes a lot of resources to be able to do what you love. And I was informed a lot by, you know, going back to the question of academia, I was informed by the debate about unpaid internships, which in my field I, I'm in a communication program. They are just rife, encouraging people to work in these so called glamorous industries for quote unquote experience rather than any form of economic capital. And so, you know, who can afford to engage in an unpaid internship? Well, it's people that are coming from privileged family and, and have those resources. And so You know, this ideal of getting paid to do what you love is very much structured through class relations. And with that backstory, the question about how this transformed how I think about academia, I tell this story in the book that was really kind of profound for me, where I was interviewing a young woman who was talking about how she thinks about the timing of her tweets And she was saying, you know, I took this course or and, you know, they said the best time to reach people is whatever hour of the day if you want to get the highest engagement on Twitter. And I was like, oh, I should think about that when I'm sending out or when I'm tweeting about my research. And I had this moment of what am I doing? you know i'm i'm not I'm not a content creator influencer. I'm in you know a seemingly very different industry, academia. Why does this feel so familiar to me? And as I thought about it, there are so many similarities between what we as academics are expected to do and what social media creators and personalities are expected to do. and so you know the metric driven benchmarks of success are are one key similarity. And so it doesn't necessarily matter how big my social media following is, but this is something that publishers ask now, academic publishers, which is interesting, but it does matter my citation index and how many people um, read and cite my work and what my Google scholar suggests. And maybe I don't need to have a consistent self brand that I can lure advertisers with, but I do need to have a consistent quote unquote brand to narrate my academic trajectory. And one of my favorite things was, I believe it's Rosalind Gill talks about this idea of compulsory sociality where you as a creative worker attend these conferences that, that are fun, but they're also kind of work. You're you're schmoozing and doing this like necessary networking. And that's what we do at academic conferences back when we when we went to academic conferences, you know, I I loved going to them. And I it was a chance to see my close friends, but you're still kind of performing this academic sense, sense of self. And, uh, you know, what what weaves them together is the very individualized nature of these careers, the idea that, you know, success or failure is all on you. And the fact that so many careers that seemingly have nothing to do with social media are routed through The logic of social media, and in particular, it's kind of mandates for for self-branding. And here we are several years after the book came out, and I still feel like I am hyper-attuned to how I present myself on social media. And, you know, we just had a entire event for our graduate students that talked about social media, self-branding, because the reality is in this job market, you have to think about your quote unquote presence, which is really your brand, your academic brand.
0: I think about this a lot. I mean, one of the things that I think about all the time now, because I do a podcast, is the ways in which this show is absolutely tied to questions of branding and publicity and amplification and reaching new markets so to speak. you know, I've had to become pretty conversant in that kind of business terminology. And it's certainly made me think about the nature of my decision to go into academia and this thing that I decided to do in particular. And I'll share this with you because I grew up in a generation of women who were not considered to be intuitively entrepreneurial. And of course, when I got into academia, I discovered that I was doing very much of what entrepreneurs do. And in fact, I was very entrepreneurial. I had just been told that that, kind of route was foreclosed to me, so I directed my entrepreneurial intuition into the particular direction of academia. There are so many similarities, so I really appreciate you pointing that out to me. There's a lot of crossover here, so your work definitely made me reflect uh, on my own activity in academia. We're getting uh, just about to the end of our time, so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your teaching and your students. I saw that this past year you taught an undergraduate course titled new media and society. What were some of the questions that came up from students in the course of that class? What are the concerns and questions that you see this next generation asking about media?
1: Such an interesting question to think about. As I mentioned earlier, I've been teaching a similar um, societal implications of media course in at various institutions for the last decade or so. And so it's really been interesting to note both the continuities as well as the the changes in the conversations. And so, as I mentioned, one of the the changes is the concerns about surveillance have been transferred from marketing and government to career forms of surveillance, which speaks very much to the conversation we just had about self-branding and so on and so forth. My students are... Keenly aware of the political concerns that we've seen with the rise of social media platforms and a lot of attention to the sorts of governance issues we just talked about. Who is doing the moderation? for content. So, you know, whether we're talking about algorithmic systems or human content moderators, you know, those workers concealed behind the scene, how are these systems shaping the kind of information we see and who sees it and how it gets curated? We have a lot of discussions about that. We spend a lot of time talking about the fact that social media can be both a boon and a detriment to marginalized communities. I mean, I think there has been, I think this speaks to a broader shift that we've witnessed over the past decade where, you know, there was a lot of early euphoria about digital platforms for democratizing life and enabling civic revolutions. And we would talk about the Arab Spring and so forth. And I think there's been, you know, a so-called tech lash since then that has drawn attention to the much more problematic and sometimes insidious activities of, of social media platforms and I think my my students show a lot of nuance and understanding that the answer to whether these platforms are inherently good or bad is in a lot of cases both or, or it depends. And you know the other big shift just wrought by the pandemic is thinking about how much of our lives are mediated online, and, and what does it mean to think about um, the TV industry when you know everything is configured by streaming? What does it mean to think about social conversations and kind of this idea of like the fabric of social life when we're all consuming content in these very customized, personalized ways? And so I. I can't necessarily go into a classroom and say, you know, what did you watch at eight o'clock last night? And we have that, that water cooler conversation because, um, you know, people's media diets are so, in a lot of ways, so customized. So, yeah, I think it's it's a lot of awareness of the importance of keeping nuance in this, but also you know, a theme that cuts across this class, or at least I hope cuts across this class, is changes and continuities. As much as we talk about profound change, we also have to acknowledge that so much of this has these precursors or analogs in um, traditional society and media culture.
0: One last question before we end. What advice do you give your students, particularly the ones who are graduating, about how they might navigate the shifting cultural, economic, and political context?
1: So I think it has to be profoundly hard to think about managing all of the different strains on people's time and attention in a digital environment where you don't just have to navigate the difference between personal and professional boundaries that so many people, many generations have. But you have to think about Managing different audiences and managing different profiles and all of the sort of performative dimensions that we talked about throughout our conversation. So, you know, one thing I would say is, you can't do it all, you know, especially if we're talking about people who are entering the job market, don't feel the need to maintain a presence on every website and build a portfolio and so on and so forth on, on 10 different platforms, because it's just a drain on your time and, and attention. And so I think it's really important to find out what works for you and set boundaries. This can become limitless. limitless. And I talk about you know the self-presentation and self-marketing activities that I do and see my students doing these should supplement what you're actually doing and not become everything. Whatever, th- this should not be your whole career. It it should, again, be be a side element of it. And so trying to really balance the work that you do versus promoting the work that you do, I think is something to, to be aware of. And I guess the final piece of advice, and I, I know this is difficult in practice is just for for young people to to know their worth, because there are just so many systems and mechanisms of exploitation. And, you know, we see this in the influencer industry, but we see this from a job economy that expects young people to, to work for free and for portfolio building and, and all of the activities we just talked about. But these are value generating for companies. And so they should also be value generating for individuals. And so I think really knowing one's worth and one key way to do that is to rely on others to kind of share their own resources and, and knowledge and information in and take advantages of the network capacities of everything that we've just been talking about. Thank you, Brooke. It's great to chat. Thank you, Deb, again. It was really great to chat, and I appreciate the the thoughtful questions.
0: And that's a wrap for this season. We will be back in January with a brand new season of Technically Human.